Geek Top 5 Quarantine Edition. Yay! It was time now. There was was all the time I needed. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Geek Top 5. I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And after doing a couple episodes back down to ourselves, we have a special guest in the virtual, socially distant studio again. Uh, Graham, why don't I hand this off to you to do the uh, the attributions? Well, today we are joined by Mr. Sean Lewis, a writer, director, actor, and comic book uh, figure who's, who's published a bunch of stuff through Image. And uh, we're going to talk some comic books, and then we're going to go into a very cool-sounding list. But... Thank you for joining us, Sean. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, having me. It's, it's fun to be on. So so I was, in doing my research, I was like blown away at how much stuff you've got out there. Like uh, I, you've, you co-directed a movie called These Hopeless Savages a few years ago. What was that like? Uh, that was, uh, I mean, I think a lot of the projects I've done, I've benefited from having no idea what I was doing at the beginning of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, I, I had been running a theater company for a long time, and my best friend is a, a pretty successful actor in New York, on a, like stage actor. And we, since undergrad, had been threatening to make a movie. We've always wanted to do it and do it together. And uh, I, w- I was working in a small city, and I finally had met a, a young student, uh, Caitlin Busby, who was in the film program at Iowa. And as I was talking to her, I threw out, like, hey, what would it take to, like, make a, a movie? Like... And she was like, oh, I just want the experience. Like, let's figure it out. And so I started talking to Matt about it. And I was like, let's let's make like a road trip movie. We'll just like, we'll go to all these different cities where I've performed theater at. And we'll pick up crew members um, in each of those cities and volunteers. And we'll use actors who I worked with on plays in each of those cities. And we'll just like write it specifically for that kind of adventure. And so, yeah, over the course of about 10 days... Uh, we we drove cross country from New York to Iowa, and we would pick up a new cast and crew in each city and film. Um, and yeah, it was kind of amazing. Like the whole thing cost us about six or seven thousand, like just under seven thousand um, dollars. And then when we finished it, we were shocked. We actually had a watchable movie. Um, so yeah, it played a, it played like thirty festivals. It streams on Amazon. Uh, it's all kind of really surreal. But like, I get statements because people buy the Blu-ray. It's a very weird experience. Wow. Like, I'm like this thing we kind of made as an ex- we, not even kind of that we made as an experiment. Like our mantra the whole time was like, well, even if it's unwatchable, like even if the feature version of this is horrible, we should have enough footage to make at least a short. And so I ju- we just kept telling ourselves that of like, well, we'll at least have a short and seven days for a short's not horrible. And we're just kind of learning how to do this. And then, yeah, we were just surprised. We would watch the dailies each night and just be like, this is actually not horrible. And it, <laughs> and honestly, like it's an, it, it, you can kind of tell it's a first effort because I think like we shot it all on basically in order, you know, because we were going city by city. And so we were following that. And I I do think like our filmmaking does get better and better and more and more confident as the movie goes on, Uh, which which was like a cool thing to learn. Like by the end, it was just like, you know, we we knew so much more like because I'd never taken a film class. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, So it was a lot of just like four of us driving around in a car, stealing shots. It was it was fun. It was a really fun summer project of, you know, five, five years ago, six years ago. It sounds like a hell of an experience. Yeah, it was 
it was a trip, you know, because you, you're doing a lot of guerrilla filmmaking where we would like, you know, we would pick up shots at like travel centers where we're just wearing like lav microphones that attach to our clothes. And Matt and I are like feigning having a fight in front of these families who are actually on vacation and, you know, <laughs> trying to get out of there as soon as possible. And then, you know, like and just things go wrong. Like the, the car that we were driving, like we broke down like an hour from our last destination and we're like just like. We, forced to, we were forced to take three scenes that happened in other places and just stage them all in this like gas station that we were stranded at until we could get <laughs> someone to come fix the car. Um, and weirdly, when you watch the film, I'm like, I can't imagine it being any other way. Like some of the, some of those accidents ended up being like the highest production value. Like the scenes in that in that um, in that gas station, like their lighting was amazing, and for some reason they had blackout. Uh, shades on the windows so like it's actually really contained and, and like lit perfectly <laughs> so it's like so the one car of the- happened to break down in front of a prepared set <laughs> absolutely in like rural illinois like they just happened to have like the perfect thing for us and they were and like nothing was going on in that town so when we were like do you mind if we like film stuff in your back area because they had a whole back area that nobody was going into and they were like I don't care, man. Like, do do whatever you want. And we were just like, great. We're gonna film for the next six hours. Um, so yeah, it was it was really cool. You know, it, it taught. I de- it definitely taught myself and Matt and Caitlin a lot. And it was just kind of awesome because everybody who went, like were a lot of the people who worked on that film ended up getting to do bigger things soon after. You know, like uh, Mackenzie Meehan, who's an actress in it. She went on from right after that. She ended up um, being in Wolf of Wall Street with Scorsese and then wow. she's on the TV show Bull now and Matt who, who's my buddy he's on uh, the new TV show from 50 Cent called For Life uh, Caitlin's huh. in grad school now at NYU in their film directing program which is like this amazing program so it's 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 kind of cool looking at like this this like lark that we all just did fucking around and going like oh it's kind of directed or, or it helped people's careers in in different ways that that's been i mean that's one of the cooler things to look back on at it so did it lead into the tv series you did adult ed well matt created adult ed um he's the lead of it and that was his thing and he came to me you know we had done savages together and savages was a project that i very much um we we co-produced it but like i had done a lot of the planning and generating of it and then adult ed was matt kind of going like i want to see what it's like if i'm like the lead on everything um and he kind of for me like honestly it was really nice i came in just as the director where you know like in savages it was so ground it was it was so like uh grassroots that like there's a lot of scenes in savages where like so i was this i was the co-screenwriter the co-director and a co-lead and there's a lot of scenes in that where I'm in a scene acting and I'm holding the boom mic in between my legs out of camera. Like it was just like it, you're doing 10 things at once where Ed was kind of great because it was like, oh, I'm just a director and I have a DP and I have a sound person, a light person. Like like it was the, the proper graduation from what we learned from Savages to, to doing Ed. And like I said, and with Ed, what was awesome is Matt, he's worked everywhere off Broadway in New York. So like the actors that we were able to work with on that were just like unreal. Like people I grew up watching on stage or movies like Campbell Scott's in that. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, I was a massive fan before getting to work with him. And then I learned an insane amount getting to like 
watch him. And it's just funny to then become like colleagues where like, you know, you go out to dinner and like talk and it's like, wow, like I, I watched Roger Dodger 57 times in college. Like <laughs> it's really strange to be like sitting next to you. Um, but he's like, he's, he's amazing. He's just kind of a wealth of, of knowledge to watch. And so, yeah, and that, that was cool. That, that then went on to Tribeca film festival. We premiered there last year. Um, and so it's been, it, that kind of has all led to Matt and I kind of developing our own little like production company together. That's really cool. I guess uh, we, we probably jumped ahead a little bit. How did you, how did you even get into writing? Where, when did that strike you as a career? As a career? I don't know. Um, I'm still wondering at times if that's a smart move or if that's going to last. Um <laughs> I mean, I, I always wrote, I got out of a lot of projects in high school and college, or not college, but high school and elementary school by writing short stories instead of doing the proper assignment. Like there'd just be a lot of times where I was supposed to do something on like mitochondria and I'd be like, actually, I wrote a short story about cells and like I would turn that instead and I got away with it a lot. And so uh, that kind of made me go like, okay, I must be pretty good at this. And then, um, when I went to college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I'm a first generation college student. I, I didn't even have a computer. I mean, I went all the way through grad school for writing without having my own computer, which my wife makes fun of me for all the time. Um, I just didn't really, I, I knew, I mean, this will sound horrible, but like I, I knew I didn't want to work a job job. Um, everyone in my family and life had job jobs and I just looked around and I was like, everyone hates what they're doing. Like, I, I don't want to do that. And I had fantasies of being a novelist. I, you know, when I was an undergrad, I spent the whole four years trying to write a novel, and then the next couple of years afterwards writing. And and while I was in undergrad, I fell into acting and theater, and I was doing that a bit professionally. And then that led to me um, being interested in in playwriting, mainly to create vehicles for myself, like. Matt and I graduated undergrad, we went down to New York City and you know, you're auditioning against thousands of people. And I was really interested in doing different kinds of theater than I was being brought out for. I was, I was brought out a lot for Shakespeare because I was pretty good with language, but I, I didn't love doing it and I couldn't get any of my friends to see it like ever. Like it was like inviting people to a funeral. And, <laughs> and I was really into like slam poetry and like the New Oregon Poets Cafe in New York. And I was right, I started going there and and writing a lot of poetry and I was always a huge hip hop fan. And so I was like, I want to make plays that feel like this. So, and I think I'd be good if I did this. So I started writing like solo shows, like one man plays. Um, and so the first one I wrote was this hip hop solo piece. So everything was in rhyming verse and it kind of took off. Like I was very, very broke. Um, and I, I did it and I got invited to a festival. Um, I did it at a fringe festival and then theater started hiring me to do it. And I started traveling a little bit internationally doing it in colleges. And then I was like, Oh, this is working. Like people are paying me to do this. I should write another solo show. And so then I wrote another and then that led to another and another. And so that kind of became in the theater world, like my main, I'd say my main crux and what I was kind of known for. Were they um, all in that hip hop style? They all had elements of it. Like there's probably at least two or three of them that I rapped in. Uh, that I would have like my concert moment, you know. <laughs> um, they they went across the gamut. Like uh, Orphans was was a, a fictional story written in rhyming verse with multiple characters. It was a lot like there's this performer I really was obsessed with named Danny Hawk, 
um, out of New York, who was kind of like Eric Bogosian, like if people know theater, like he just played lots of different characters. And then after that, I, I, I had this opportunity to go and work in a prison in Philadelphia called Greaterford Prison with, um, there was a group of guys who were serving life sentences that were responsible for painting about a third of the 3000 murals that are in the city of Philadelphia. Hmm. And I was really fascinated. And the thing is that they painted the murals in uh, relate. They painted the they painted the murals in Congress with victims of their crimes. So like families of, of people they had killed would come in and paint with them. So oh my I, God. I, yeah, it was an intense project. So I spent so orphans kind of like built a name for me. And then I got invited to this theater in Philadelphia and they were like, do you want to go into a prison and interview these guys? And maybe a small little piece will come out of it, like a 15 minute long play. So I went in and I was teaching workshops with them and I started interviewing them and I started interviewing the victims' families. And then it was a summer where there was like, it, I mean, Philly has on a regular basis, a, 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 their murders spike um, every couple of years. And it was a year where there was a lot of murder in the city. And so I was going around just interviewing anyone I could meet. And that turned into this play called Philadelphia, which was like a documentary piece that it was it was me playing about 40 people, but they were all uh, verbatim interviews with the people that I'd met. And then that so each one of the projects just started leading to another project. So the work I did on Philadelphia got me invited to work with some festivals and places in Rwanda and Tanzania and Africa. And so then I made an, an, a piece based out of like interviews and, and people I met there. And then I toured that for a while. And so it's. So I guess like how, like getting into being a writer, it was like, I knew I loved writing and I wanted to figure out how to get paid for it and how to do it. Like the idea of that seemed awesome. It, it kind of started becoming self-perpetuating where like I'd make a project and then that project, a couple of people would see it. Like I wouldn't see any, like clearly, like I wasn't like on Broadway or anything. So it's, it's not like they became like Hamilton, but like a person or two would see it who had some influence and they'd be like, why don't you come over to our theater? We've got some, we've got a little bit of money we could hire you for. And then like, a radio program would see me and be like, Hey, if you want to submit some radio stories to us, you can. So like, it wasn't like automatic green lights I was getting from people. It was just like doors would just start to open a crack where people would be like, if you got something like, tell us, let us know. Um, and so that it just like the, the, um, the business of it became kind of like self-perpetuating where each project I did would then open up like two or three more projects. And, and then it really kind of became a career out of that. I mean, it sounds like you've been all over the world. It, it, has that settled down or do you still enjoy traveling a lot? No, I, I have a four-year-old son. I don't travel at all. Um, I, I, barely, <laughs> I, I, I barely go down the street. Um, yeah, there was a stretch there. You know, like the first year I was married, I think I was on the road for eight months, which I don't recommend to anybody. Um, yeah, there was, a, there was a good stretch of three or four years where I was on the road you know, much more of the time than I, I would equate it probably to like, you know, road comedians. Like I, I was just on the road a lot more than I was home. Um, and then that got insanely lonely. I'm not a good, I'm not a, there's some people I knew in that circuit, you know, who they would go to different cities um, and they would have shows and they would spend all day like going to museums or going hiking. I'm not that dude. Like I'm like nervous the whole time. So like, I, I'm like not leaving my hotel i'm not i'm not like letting sunlight in so it just became like three or four years of that i was just like this is miserable like i'm gonna be such an unhappy person if i if i get any more success in this i'm gonna be really horribly mad at everyone and um and so then i we just started shifting it like me and my wife my wife is an actress and a playwright and we 
I started going like, okay, I have all these connections at touring venues because I've, because of, I've been touring. So we were like, okay, what if we go to a cheaper city and we build a touring theater company so that like me and her could go on the road together and we would have a group of actors with us that we could bring with us and, and we could use all the connections I had. So then we started a theater company right around then and, and we did that for, for a good amount of years where we would just do like national tours to like performing art centers um, around the country, just bringing shows, um, shows to them. That's, that sounds really cool. Do you do you take your son with you on those, or is that? Uh, well, my it's funny. That... My theater career is basically over. <laughs> like, like I still have plays getting produced, but I don't really perform that much anymore. And with the with the touring company, I, I was primarily the director. I, I would just direct all the pieces. I wrote some of them, but I was really there as like both the artistic mind and 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 as like the uh, you know the the planning, the strategic of it and um you know when you're doing everything yourself it just it just kind of was getting really tiring and it was a lot of work and and theater is up and down you know like i don't, I don't really know what a lot of theaters are going to do now like in, right. in covid it's really really scary um for them like I, when i talk to friends i really i just got really really burnt out you know there was a point where i was actually the artistic director of two different theaters at the exact same time uh, one was producing like an eight show season, including an outdoor Shakespeare festival. Um, and then the other one was this touring company that was on the road all the time. And after two years of doing that, I just was, I was really miserable and burnt out and, uh, was just kind of like, Oh, I love theater. And, and then like, I, I just was finding myself like wanting to just get away. And at the same time, like during that is when uh, my, the comics opportunities had started. And I just really I loved comics as a kid, and the economics of it were actually really good. I was like, I'm not having to go on the road ever. Single some of these single issue sales are as good as when I get commissioned to write a play. So hmm. I, I just was kind of like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot into this, and I'm gonna do some more film and TV stuff where I'm only I might have to leave home, but it's like I'm gonna do three weeks away from home, and that's it, like for the year. And so that the last two or three years has been, you know, with the patience of my family going like, I think all that money and everything I was doing in theater, we're, I'm going to leave all of that. And I'm going to see what it's like to be over here for a little while. <laughs> it sounds like a hell of a, hell of an adventure. <laughs> I guess so. so I, I say it out loud and I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I want to I, I want to get into the comic stuff, but I also have to quickly ask uh, sure. since it's sort of like the king of the podcast landscape. How did the This American Life story happen? <laughs> that came out of Philadelphia. Um, when I was doing Philadelphia in Philly, um, I someone saw it and they were like, "You should submit stories to This American Life." They have a email list that they let some people be on. They don't do it this way anymore, but the way they used to do it was like. They're, you know, they're, they're always working on multiple shows. So there'd be a lot of times that they'd have like four or five episodes, right? Where they'd have like two of the stories out of four, or they'd have four and they were missing one. And so what they would do is like, they had a group of contributors who were like a mix of like people like me who were performance artists, uh, other journalists. Sometimes they were like people like Berbiglia, like comedian performers. And what you would do is you would get this lit email every, there, there was no like, there was no real schedule to it. It just came out when they needed it. 
So the email would basically have like, here's four shows that we're working on and what we're looking for. And it'd be really specific. So it was easier to pitch than mm. than normal. You know, like a lot of times you're pitching blind and then you find out later, like, actually we have like five projects right now that all happen in space. So like the moment we heard your thing was in space, we threw it outside, you know? So, but with them, it would be like, you know, for specifically for the episode I did, they're like, we have a story in this that is really long and is amazing, but is one of the darkest stories we've ever done in our life. So we need like a romance or a comedy. And it had to do with things that take a long time to gestate. And I was just like, oh, my uncle Mark like dated his wife for like 23 years in secret. I think that fits, you know? So so I just like sent that as, I basically sent that sentence and, and just reminded them of who I was. And then a producer called me and was like, what are you talking about? Like, what, like what, what does that mean? And so then I just like on the phone was telling, letting her know about my uncle. Uh, it ended up being a really popular story on the show, I think because of the romantic angle of it. But like my uncle, when I was younger, he, he was stationed in Korea and he fell in love with his, his wife, the woman he's married to right now. Um, ha, while he was over there, but he, my family was having financial problems. So he left, he left Korea when his, his, uh, you know, his time of service was up and he came out to help us. And, you know, it was the eighties. So there was no internet. So they lost complete track of each other. So about for like four or five years, my uncle was like placing ads in newspapers. He was calling up the Korean secret police and pretending that like he owed money to her uh, just to try and track her down. And then he eventually tracked her down and she wouldn't talk to him. She was just so mad at him for having left her. And then over the course of like the next 12 years, 13 years, he kind of, got her to trust him again. They started going on a date once every six months in Hawaii, like they would meet halfway. And then one day, and our family knew nothing about it the entire time. We had no idea what he was doing. And then one day he just turned to us like at a family dinner and he was like, uh, I have an announcement. I'm going to get married to Ha. And we were all like, wait, what? Who, who's Ha? What's going on? Um, and then, yeah, they, they, they got married and they've been together ever since. So that ended up being the story that I did on, on This American Life. And it was a really... It's a really slam dunk thing, just because it, it fit the sh- it fit what they needed in that episode perfectly. I was also, so busy. Sorry, go ahead. It, sorry, it felt it felt like the quintessential This American Life story when I yeah. listened to it. It just was like so perfectly in sync with the kind of stories they do. A- absolutely, like it's really heartwarming. It has like all of those beat turns at the exact moment you want those turns to happen. <laughs> like like all those things where you're like, and he abandons her, and you're like, oh no, what are you doing? And then it's like, but then he tracks her down, and then like there's this, there's this, and there's that, and so it like works very much in like the the way that that program and Ira like want stories to to operate, you know. And it was a really good learning experience because like I, I was working with one of their, I was working with Julie Snyder, who was like an amazing producer over there. And she really just coached me through the writing of, of it. So I learned a lot actually about like dramatic reveal in our, our go backs. Cause I was like, Oh, I've never really thought of at the, you know, cause it's so minute by minute that I, it was a lot of like, okay, we're coming to like minute six. We needed to turn like for the length of the story. It has to turn at that moment. I'd be like, what, why, what do you, I don't even know what you're talking about. And then like seeing, seeing the way that it operates, it was like, oh, this is kind of brilliant how, how this is all like this math that you guys have, which is, definitely helped me like moving into like working on screenplays especially you start going like oh there's a definitive math to how this thing works wow huh okay back to comic books what uh what got you into comics when you were a kid what's what's that story like i had a crazy uncle that i live with um yeah emmett he owns a comic book shop now 
Uh, he used to sing in death metal bands. I tried to do a This American Life story about him too, just because he's so colorful, man. He's amazing. Um, yeah, Emmett, can't, my, when we moved back from, um, my parents got divorced. We were all living in Denver and we moved back to New York and we, li- we ended up living with my grandparents and their kids. And so Emmett was, some, you know, he was 16, he was about eight years older than me. So when he was 16, I was eight. He was a huge comic book collector. And I just thought it was, him and his friends were so cool, you know. And I would just like – I would just raid his long boxes and read everything that he had, which were all books that were way more mature than I should have been reading at that point. Like he was really big into Vertigo and like Dark Horse Presents and like – so, you know, an eight-year-old shouldn't be bringing like concrete, like like, <laughs> like back issues of concrete on the bus with them. Like I, I didn't even understand them. Um, but then there was also like he had early like Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore stuff and Preacher when it first was coming out. And so like just living there and getting and knowing him, it was a thing that the two of us kind of connected over. Uh, it just really grew. You know, I, I started out with what he was really interested in and then I, I started to find my own obsessions. You know, like I was a huge – that whole Chris Claremont X-Men run, I was super obsessive about. Uh, Love I loved – yeah, and I love Daredevil. Like I love Frank Miller's Daredevil. Like there's there's a whole stretch of like like M. M- Mazzuchelli, which I'm sure I butchered his name, but like the Born Again one was something that I remember reading it when it came out. And like there was a there was a bunch of Daredevil runs that were like super dark and realistic when I was a kid. That I don't even know who wrote some of the issues, but I re- I still remember the issues. Like there was an there was an angel dust issue where like a girl jumped through a window and fell to the ground like i still that freaked me out then and i still remember it now um that like comics uh, comics and movies are probably are the things that i i still think are like they still kind of entrance me because there's so many things from them i forget so much of my everyday and i'm like there's still frames and moments of movies and panels of comics that i'm like when i die i'm gonna still remember that that moment of that book and that's just kind of incredible to me okay so you were so was it uh i guess you came to superheroes sort of after some of the other stuff yeah yeah i i mean and it was obsessive about swamp thing right so like swamp thing was something i was definitely reading and not understanding at all when i was like nine or ten right like so I'm like not he, sure I understand it now. I, I don't at all. I, I have I have the Alan Moore Swamp thing upstairs. I love it. I'm like, this is brilliant. This is I don't I don't know what the hell's going on sometimes, but it's <laughs> like it's amazing to read. It feels like an experience, which is really cool, right? Like right. um as a kid I just was like, it's this there's this gross like plant monster and it has a love interest and like I just was like all the, I think it was just like as a as a as a young kid, I think I was just blown away because I was like, all this shit's crazy, right? Like, there's no rules to this. Like, when I'm watching a sitcom with my parents at night, like, there's definitive rules to how everyone's behaving. And then I was picking up my uncle's comics, and I'm like, none of this is at all, like, what the rest of my life is telling me to behave like. <laughs> so <laughs> so that that was really freeing. And I think, it, I think that influenced a lot of my writing sometimes for better or worse is like a lot of what I'm drawn to more is stuff that's, you know, less simple and more and more complex and, and more gray. Like I, I think the comics and stories I was drawn to the most were like things that were morally ambiguous or way more complicated than I'm, we root for this guy. Cause he's good. I think that's why I liked X-Men and Claremont is like the, the inter the interpersonal romance and issues of the ca- 
the, the, the issues of the team itself is what always I was obsessed with. Right. Yeah. Is that like Wolverine and Colossus aren't getting along and they're fighting over Kitty Pride and how Peter's been treating her. But they're all supposed to be friends. But that's all bullshit. Like, like at 13, I was just like, I didn't understand the depths of that. But I know it's what I was. It was the parts of the story I was most interested in. So what does your your uncle think now that you're you're putting <clears throat> putting out all these comic books? It's cool. He's like my biggest fan. He gets really mad at me when I can't tell him stuff like <laughs> That happens a lot where he's like, what, who, what, what are you writing for this place? And I'm like, I can't, I'm not allowed to tell you. He's like, what, what are you talking about? Like, we're related. <laughs> um, but it's, he's been amazing. I mean, I do signings at his shop all the time. I think it's brought us, our relationship closer together, right? Because like, I, I'm not very, I'm not at all, I don't know really anyone in the comics industry except for the artists that I work with, right? Like, I don't have, like, not, not for any bad reason. I just like, I've lived pretty isolated and outside of it. And so Emmett's been great because he's like one person I can turn to and I'm like, hey, did you see that variant that came, <laughs> that came out? Or, or like, what about this news at DC? Is that crazy? Or like, what do you know? What do you think about what Marvel's doing with digital? And like, you know, stuff that no one else in my life would give a shit about. Like, I mean, me and him will talk for two hours while I walk the dog. Right. And, and just be like, yeah, that's fascinating. I better go here. So so that's been like it's been cool, you know, like in a way, like this love affair for comics is like something that I think brought me and him closer together when I was a young kid and, and now as like older, I think it's also cool for him to be like, I'm doing this job that like both of us would have thought was impossible. Like when I was 12 or 13 and it's very much connected to the fact that he introduced me to it. Like, I don't know if I would have found comics otherwise. Huh? So how did you get into making your own <laughs> complete accident? I mean, a complete accident. Um, I'd started – so I felt – I stopped reading comics probably somewhere around college and then didn't read them for a long time. I, I got heavily into theater and I was working on plays and writing plays and reading plays nonstop. And I just, I just didn't really know what was going on in comics at all. So that would be like late 90s through early to mid-2000s. And then um, I had a friend in the theater who knew that I had read some stuff in the past because I, I went to his house and I saw he had the Infinite Crisis collection and I was like, holy shit, I was obsessed with that. Can I borrow it? Because I hadn't looked at it in years. And I, I, I was staying at his house and I think I read it again in like three days and I was like, this is still fucking great. And then he gave me Essex County by Jeff Lemire and I was like, this is amazing. Like I really fell in love with it. I just thought- like Canadian. Yeah, I, I just I so I just so fell in love with that book and like everything about it, and then that I, I, like our local our library had some had a good buyer, so like they had his run on Animal like Animal Man, so I read that, and then it just so happened I was working on a play and I wanted to do live animation in it, and I wanted to use like the old school overhead projectors that you used to have to crank to make the the transparency move past. So what yeah. I wanted, I wanted someone to draw on the transparency as it was being cranked. So it would make like this live movie that was just like rolling across in front of you. And so the artist I found for it was, uh, he started doing the drawings for it. He, he was a recommendation and they all looked like these like silver age Superman drawings. And I mentioned it to him. He was like, yeah, I, I really like comics. And we started talking and he was, and it turned out that he had taught himself how to draw by looking at um, like Byzantine era Christian art, and I grew up a you know Catholic, like like heavily Irish Catholic, first generation, and so we both had like a, a pretty deep understanding or, or knowledge of like Christian mythology, Catholic mythology, 
And um, we just started joking around, like as we were painting the set one day, going like, "Yeah, it'd be so funny. We should make like a comic." And like, it's like all these atheists, but they get empowered to be like with the powers of saints, so they're almost like God's X Men. And then it was just like, "Fuck that! I'd read that. That might be cool." And so we just did it. We just made a first issue to entertain ourselves. So we made this like twenty-page issue of this book called Saints. And I didn't know. We, and I, I read it, and I was like, "This is actually pretty good. Like, maybe we should send it out and see if anyone's interested." I didn't know how you did that, so I just went to websites and I was looking for contact information. And I went to the Image website, and Image had Eric Stevenson's email on it at that time. They don't anymore, so sorry anybody listening. But <laughs> but Eric's Eric's email was on the site, and so I basically just like I I just sent him. I didn't know that you. I didn't know anything. So I just sent it to him. I was like, okay, when I write a play, I send it to an artistic director. I have a comic. I should send it to the editor-in-chief, publisher. And so I sent it to him, and um, I didn't hear anything at all, not even, like, receipt. And then, like, four months later, I was literally about to go on stage for a show in New Hampshire. And uh, my phone rings backstage. Don't recognize the number. It's from Berkeley. I answer, and it's Eric Stevenson. And he's like, hey, are you the guy who wrote Saints? I was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's just like, how would you like to do that at Image? And I was just like, fuck, man. Like, I I have to go on stage, but yes, like I would love I would love to do it at Image. And so yeah, Ben and I ended up doing this nine issue run of Saints at Image. And then um, during that, I I met Hayden Sherman, who I ended up doing the few and thumbs with, and Caitlin Yarsky, who I did Coyotes with, and I'm now doing this book Bliss with. So it just kind of spiral spiraled on. In a kind I have of to say, way. in your in the the work of yours that I've read, the art always stands out. Like the art is amazing, and, and considering you don't really have these contacts in the industry, I, it's, I'm so impressed how you find these people. They're incredible. Yeah, I found I found them on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, world we live in, I guess. <laughs> well, you know, I, I had finished Saints, and I had I had the beginning of the idea for the few and i was having so much fun doing saints that i was like i gotta do another comic this industry is awesome like like saints we didn't make anything on it but i was just like i don't care i don't care if i never make money in this this is just like a, such a cool experience and i asked eric i was like okay i've done a book and image like you guys can like set me up with an artist right now right and eric was like we don't really do that you should go to like deviant art and so i went to deviant art and i was so overwhelmed that i ran away well, he just he just mentioned sites and, and he was like, you should look at other comics. And he gave a bunch of advice, but it was all stuff where I was like, I don't even know how to do this. And then like I found that that Boom Comics had a page on Facebook that was called Boom Artist Submissions. And I think it was just so that they didn't get overwhelmed with people sending in portfolios. And um, I don't think they checked it much either because people would like mention that in the comments. And I just spent like probably two or three nights on a weekend. I was like, I know I want to do these two books. And I, and I just scrolled through every portfolio. And in the same night, I found both Hayden's portfolio and Caitlin's portfolio. And then um, I, I saw the portfolios and I immediately was like, I got to do the few with Hayden. Like my gut is just telling me his art is perfect for it. And I looked at Caitlin's art and I was like, she'd be amazing on Coyotes. And I, I didn't even know what these books were. They were literally like just a paragraph of stuff I'd written down. I was like, this might be an idea. So then I contacted both of them, I think the next day and was like, I have this book at image that you probably have never heard of, <laughs> you know, but I'd love, I'd love to work with you. And what do you think? And they both said yes. And then I went away and I wrote the first issue of each and sent it to them. They both went off, drew an entire first issue. And then I brought those issues to, to Eric and, and the rest is 
his kind of history. But that's that's basically how how those both went. That's incredible. Uh, so you've got a new one coming out in a, in a few days at this point, right? What's tell us a bit about that? Sure. Yeah, Caitlin um, and I are doing a book called Bliss, which is um, you know it, it's our follow up to Coyotes, which did really well for us. Um, we tend to do more complicated kind of political, uh, or at least at least so I would call them social books. Um, this one, like Caitlin and I, got caught up in a conversation one night. We do a lot of the conception just through like direct message on Twitter and phone calls and text. Just like they usually start out as general conversations, and then we're like, "I'm obsessed with that." Are you obsessed with that? And then we're like, "Okay, that might be part of the book." And so we were just throwing around ideas, and you know, we were talking a bit about politics before I came on. And it was really us just going like, how do you think people do horrible things and sleep at night? Like, how do you think that they're able to just be okay with it? And we were like, we weren't thinking of it for a book. We were just like honestly asking each other and laughing about it. And it was like, I don't know, man, maybe they take a drug and it just washes it away. And then it was like, eh, what if we just, what's that? Like, what if there was a drug that you could take that like, say you were a criminal and you had, but you were deep down, you wanted to be a good person, right? Like you, you, in, in our book, there's a hitman. And the way he gets rid of his like his bad memories that would keep him up at night, the, the things that he's done, is he takes this drug that's called bliss. When he takes the drug, what ends up happening is like if, if people have been around addicts, right, there's a lot of sweating. There's a lot of like per- perspiration and, and body reactions. So as the body pers- perspires, what ends up happening is that memory, if you imagine it becoming a piece of sweat, it drops from your body and into the cracks of the ground. And in the city... It goes through the cracks of the ground into a river and it floats down to the goddess Leth, who is the goddess of oblivion, the goddess of, of losing memories, of memory. And so basically, this is a city where the goddess Leth is providing this drug for a, for a secret reason that you learn throughout the book. And she enlists this man who basically his son is in the hospital incredibly sick and he doesn't know how to pay for it. And she she comes to him with that devil's offer of like, Will you do really horrible things if you can save your son? And you won't have to live with it because we'll give you this drug and it'll make it all go away. And so he does. He makes he makes the bargain. And so it jumps around in time where we we see that we see how he came to it and all the horrible acts he did. And then we also see his son years later in a courtroom atmosphere, not only trying to defend to all of the victims what his dad did and explain to them the ways in which he has saved the town without them knowing. And at the same time, he's aware that like that does not mean that his dad should be redeemed at all. But it is part. But that it's it has to be part of the story. So you know, it's a simple book. It's a really yeah. simple. <laughs> yeah. hearted fun for the whole family. Uh, <laughs> that's intense. Uh, it's got its moments. It's got its moments. But it, it's also got like turtle gods and like these funny minions and. You know, there's, it's, you know, it, I wanted to do a noir. I was really interested in using noir tropes and Caitlin wanted to draw gods. And so that's a lot how we work. Cause it's just like, it's kind of like a theater improv where we just go, yes, and instead of one of us going like, no, I want to do a noir. There's not going to be turtle guards of gods in this book. Like, fuck off. It becomes like, okay, what's the world in which those two things coexist? And so like, I mean, it's become, if nothing else, like I, as I keep, I keep saying to anyone, I'm like, Caitlin's work on Coyotes was pretty unbelievable. Her work in Bliss is actually, like, I don't even think, she, I, she won't take it as insult, but like, it's incredibly better. Like, my, like it's, a, it's amazing to see 
her improve and it's kind of dumbfounding me for me to think like where is she gonna be in another book or two like i i just can't even really wrap my head around it like people should the art is so incredible that i'd be like even if you hate the book i would get it as a coffee table book solely because of the art well the stuff that she drew for coyotes was incredible so if it's improving I, I gotta, I gotta tell you that lava wolf, like the oh, it's incredible. I, trust me, when imagine being the person who wrote that in a script and then opening the art for the first time. I went, I, I think I ran around the house because <laughs> yeah, the lava wolf is like such an amazing, amazing drawing. I also was like a huge New Mutants fan and like Sunspot, so it had like for me, it had echoes of that in a way that I was like, this is better than I could have ever imagined. Nice. All right. Well, let's let's. Uh, why don't we dive into the top five now? What's right. uh, what's the list you've brought for us? Um, I brought uh, religious adaptations in media, <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds like you're coming at it from a you know a point of education, right? Like this isn't your first time dealing with gods and comic books. <laughs> no, no, it's 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 definitely not. Um, I know when I, I pitched this to you, there was, there was a level of like, wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but there but there are some books that I just absolutely love and there's one there's one cheat like I, I cheat into mythology at one point but yeah so how do we do this what, what's the uh what well, we usually go in in reverse order so start at number five and we'll work up to number one and you you give us your pitch and then we'll we'll just talk about it for a little bit is, is usually how it works so five is my cheat it uses Native American mythology but it definitely has like judeo-christian concepts of sin and revenge and that would be the crow now this Um, sounds like something that would have been something you stole from your uncle oh absolutely i (laughs) i definitively remember getting yelled at about this um because i feel like it 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 sold it definitely sold out in the story where he's at and i heard about it for a long time before he actually owned it it was something that like him and all of his friends were really excited about and like yeah I, i don't even remember i was i don't even know if i was 10 at that point I just remember like the first time seeing England, like, what is this book? This is amazing. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty cool book. I, it's uh, uh, definitely a bit of a blind spot for me. I'm, I'm sort of the, the comic book guy out of the, the two of us, but I've seen the first movie and uh, I'm aware of it, but it it feels like it was so groundbreaking when it first came out. And it's, it's I, I don't know, like... What was it like getting your hands on or hearing about it back then? Well, it was small press, right? Like like much smaller than any – like I'm trying to think of a press that – I also don't want to name – I don't want to make people feel bad by going like, it would be like if this person put out a book. But, you know, like there, there was no image. There was no boom. Like the, the creator market was not as vibrant. It was really, you know, Marvel and DC. And then there was a ton of these smaller publishers. And it came out of the nowhere. Like, I feel like it's like Kitchen Sink Press that put it out. Um, so, like, super small. Print run was really small because no one really expected much of it. And then the word of mouth on it was massive. Black and white, um, you know, like, had this total, like, neo-noir but punk rock vibe. Like, rock and roll, heavy metal type singer as the lead character. Barry died, comes back. There's crows everywhere. Like, there's all this, like, symbolic art in the panels. Um, and is very much about like this sinful guy lives this life, gets killed early, and then like making his way back to have his revenge, but also create redemption for himself at the same time. You know, it's just I just remember being like, like it was such a fantasy type book for me. Like this guy's not only a rock star, he's also a superhero. 
you know, he gets to die and come back, right? Like, so he's got a total Jesus vibe to him. So, like, as a as a kid who was growing up in a household of, you know, first-generation Irish Catholic with tons of guilt, but also my uncle playing, like, death metal upstairs all the time, I was just like, <laughs> this is like if everything in my life became me and I was the coolest person on the planet. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, they hit their target audience for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, so because we got, uh, we have a bit of a wide-ranged audience that doesn't need you to expect. Let's give a, I don't know if that's better for you, Sean, or from you, Graham, but let's do a quick, like, what, what's the pitch on The Crow? Like, if you want to say, like, who is this guy? How do you describe what's going on there? Sure. Um, a, a, a rock star is, I mean, it's the plot is insanely simple. Like, a rock star is murdered and buried and then returns from the dead with a with a crow, which is a you know, from native mythology, uh, because it has basically some punishments that need to be dealt out. And they get dealt out. They get heavily dealt out. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then after that it gets turned into this huge blockbuster movie with Bruce Lee's son playing him, and that's that and then he's tragically killed during the making of right. that movie. I wonder if the the book would have as long a life without that huge mythology now around it, like this legend of Brandon Lee around it. Probably not, honestly, because that was such a huge thing. Because that was the movie that was going to make. He had made like one movie before that that was called like Free Range or or something like that. But this was the movie that was definitively making him, you know, a, a star. Yeah, and then I mean, it feels like you could almost do a crow story about his death and like have him get resurrected and get vengeance on the guy who killed him. It uh, works too well almost. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, I'm surprised it actually hasn't been reborn more. I mean, I wonder if it's a rights question or, or what has kind of caused it not to, because it feels like it'd be a really easy book to, to revamp and, and put out even now, you know, like there's so many, there's so much you can do with it. Yeah, it feels like there. I think there were three sequels, and it feels like there's constantly been some other new version in development that doesn't end up going anywhere. Like I think, um, uh, what's his name, Aquaman, Cal Drogo. I think Jason Momoa. He was he was attached to it at one point. Oh, I didn't even know that. I mean, that makes it makes sense. I I've often wondered. I'm like, it's so amazing when you see how many remakes there are that they haven't remade this movie yet. Right. And and it feels like like that's it's James O'Barr who who is the right. creator of that right and he I don't know has he hasn't done that much is he just no. like living off the wealth of that first movie is that I, what's keeping him going I have no idea what his what else he's done like I I feel bad actually now that you mentioned it because I'm like <laughs> I know that thing really well but I have no clue of any other book that he's made right yeah I can't think of anything either just like I just know his name from that era and, and he pops up now and then with with new crow stuff but it always seems to revolve on that same first story yeah yeah absolutely and I, it's also one of these things like the movie itself I probably watched like 30 times like when it came out on VHS <laughs> like it was definitely one of those things when I was at home by myself I would just like pop in and, and just watch for like all Saturday and Sunday Okay, let's go to your number four. All right, another little bit of a cheat because it's a character, not necessarily a full book. But number four would be Lucifer, as created by Neil Gaiman in the Sandman comics. Sandman was huge for me as a kid. 
It was one of the books that my uncle had that I would tear through and read everything. And the whole concept of, you know, I was going to Catholic school and the way my grand, my Irish grandmother would talk about the devil was so definitively like a red horned creature that seemed this like kind of debonair blonde, you know, a feet British guy was like, wait, what? Like, this is the devil? And just kind of blew my mind the first time I saw it. it also just like Sandman, even when I was young, just like was so literary, and, but at the same time, so a lot of times so clear that it was like a really groundbreaking book. It's also a book that like heavily influenced both me and Kate. And like it, it plays through, like it definitely influences parts of Bliss. That that uh, issue where they're going around hell and locking it up, it's its one of my favorite issues of that run. It's amazing. It's incredible. I, did you get into the, the spinoff series? The, the TV show? Well, I mean like the, the comic book where uh, by Mike Carey. I never read the comic that much. My my education of Lucifer was very. It's funny. The issue you mentioned is like definitively that like the Sandman the Sandman take on him is really where I I really like lived with that character. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing and uh, it's so incredible because I didn't really read Sandman until long after it finished, and it keeps shocking me how much stuff came out of it like like that Lucifer Lucifer spinoff series that lasted 75 issues and then there's Sandman Mystery Theater with the original Sandman and that went for a long time and and now it still just keeps generating yeah, new stuff it's its own universe <laughs> you've got the dreaming now yeah it's incredible that this this thing they did with Neil Gaiman that the first couple of years they were like we don't even know if this works no one's buying it has become like just massive and it's it's so it feels so unique and so contained and yet all this stuff is spun out of it. And it's so weird to think of other people working on these characters that aren't Neil Gaiman because it, it seems so personal. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. But comics are weird that way anyway, because it, it always yeah. is, it also trips me out all the time to think that at one point Neil Gaiman was working on spawn, right? Like, like that just seems also <laughs> weird, like insanely. I have like a cognitive dissonance. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. Do you watch? So, do you watch the Lucifer TV show at all? I've watched some of it. I, I don't watch as much TV as I probably would like to, just between deadlines and everything. But definitely, that's been one that I've picked up a couple times, and I've enjoyed what I've seen. It just seems it. I, I haven't watched much of it, but it seems like they've turned it into sort of a cop procedural show that happens to feature the devil right. solving crimes every week. <laughs> right. Yeah, they add in a touch. Uh, it, it gets a lot of play here. There's there's a whole community between like my wife and my mother. And that the, I, I think it's definitely targeted to a certain audience. That, uh, <laughs> sure. Those examples may give you an idea of what I'm looking at. <laughs> yeah, It's definitely targeted more to the romance of the character. And the mythology is built in. Uh, mostly just to uh, help explain away the, you know, like how do you, you need, Superman needs his kryptonite, right? Right. right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like, so in the book is what I'm getting at. <laughs> so what's uh, number three, Sean? Three would be, um, I mean, these are, I also should say like, especially the next three are in no definitive order for me. Like in, okay. Of, of the judging. It's, it's just too hard for me. Would be uh, Mike Magnolia's Hellboy. Um just I came to it late. Honestly, what happened? I, I remember trying to read Hellboy like years and years and years ago, and just being like, I don't know what this is, and like putting it to the side. Um, and then it was really all every artist I've ever worked with has been like, oh, I'm I'm really interested. It, like it, 
like influenced by Magnolia. No matter like Caitlin Hayden and Ben, who are all wildly different types of artists. And I finally was like, I gotta reread all of these books because the three of you draw insanely different. So the idea that Magnolia is influencing all of you, and they they would t- walk me through it of like, look how, how like how I'm using space, and like look at this page. They would like send me a page, and I went back and and like. The, Luckily, I'm in a library that right now that has a lot of Magnolia, and then I went through a lot of the Dark Horse catalog with them. And I just like, I'm just constantly amazed again at like, I think part of it is like, as a creator, working in the creator owned space, I just look at the, the size of a world that Magnolia has built. And I, and it just blows me away. Like the commitment to a character for that long and to that far reaching of a story. And like, it's like its own Bible. You know, like that's incredible to me of, of what he's done. But also, I do love it. Like, there are like, I, I'm, you know, it's obviously not like definitively a Christian book in the same ways that things like Lucifer and some of the other things I'll mention are. But like, churches pop up constantly. Like, the iconography of the church is like heavily present in design elements, panel layouts, and backgrounds constantly. Which I don't know. I just dig. I really dig. Like, I all like. Mm-hmm. Having gone back, I'm, there's times where I look at the panel breakdown and I'm like, oh, I've seen stained glass like this. This is amazing. Like, so, so I think it it definitely tickles for me like the the art side of 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 some of the Catholic you know icon and imagery. Yeah, and and the the art definitely is the standout of it. Like the sometimes the stories in Hellboy don't always grab me, but I can right. just go page by page through the amazing art and the character designs, and it's it's fascinating. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say the same thing. You know, there's some stories I'll read of it that I really really love, and then there's there's definitely been issues of it where I'm I am treating it like an art book and not losing any enjoyment out of it. Where like where I'm just kind of flipping through and I'm like ah. Oh, there's so much beauty in this. Like, this is fascinating. I can't disagree with you, but that, that I find that that bugs me a little. <laughs> I love those characters so much that, like, 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 oh god, I was it was so exciting when they put them up on the screen, you know, like just to see what they did with them. I just, I don't know the the way that there's a word for like when you watch the same news anchor every night, you sort of see them as like a member of the family. <laughs> I sort of get that. It's, I, f- I feel sort of like you're challenging me a little. <laughs> yeah, it's mostly about the art, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I guess, I don't know. I, I there's not many books I do that with, you know. Like that's definitely. One that I think I I definitely the art is what will get me to pick it up every time I see it, you know, or, or to purchase it is that I'm I'm just like, I don't know. Sometimes I like the story. Sometimes I'm not as much into it, but I know I'm going to be so blown away by the art. Also, a lot of times the art is what will inspire some of my own writing. And I, I think some of that also comes from my background. Like a lot of my early writing, I went to Catholic school, would be me daydreaming and looking at all of this iconography around me the whole day. I mean, I wrote some very weird stories. So... <laughs> So I do think there's elements of that where I'm just like, oh, it does kind of remind me in weird ways of, of like sitting in class and looking around at these kind of gory but beautiful pictures all day. And hmm. it, it feels like you don't get a lot of his art these days. It sort of no. it comes and goes. And so whenever there's new stuff by him, it's always a treat. Absolutely. Especially Absolutely. since he sort of handed off art and writing chores on some of the other titles. And, and so when he comes back, it's always great. And just to talk a bit more about, about it being an indie book. And, and the only thing I can think about as far as a comparison goes is like the Ninja Turtles for how 
widely recognized that these indie comic book characters are. I mean, Ninja Turtles are a whole other level, but the closest they're the closest I can compare. Nothing else is quite like that. You know, yeah. three blockbuster movies. It's it's wild from this little book that that he just started on his own. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Like he's built his own like hell I mean Hellboy's its own media empire. Like it's yeah. Kind of, it's also so, I also do think I just kind of love like it's <laughs> only in comics does that become a media empire for the rest of the world. Like it's it's this grotesque ornery <laughs> character, right? Like there's he's not attractive. He, he's damned. Like there's like so many <laughs> negative qualities about him and it's like no, we can put like an entire universe on top of this guy and and just ride out who he is 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 really interesting yeah yeah it's true and and both of them both you know that and ninja turtles and even the crow there are things that i don't think anyone could have possibly predicted them becoming as big as they were when they were first released it's just like you never know what's gonna hit no absolutely not I, I mean, every time people, I think theater and comics definitely work in that. Is like in theater, we always knew the moment we thought something was a hit, it was going to fail miserably. And most <laughs> of the things we thought were, we were like, no one's ever going to give a shit about this. We were like, this was the biggest thing we did all year. Always. I think there's there's a life lesson there. <laughs> if we can crack that night. <laughs> okay, so what's number two? Number two, big influence, discovered him in the early Swamp Thing books that my uncle had, would be John Constantine Hellblazer. I have uh, to admit, this is a big blind spot for me. It's always oh. felt like it's too intimidating to get into because it's there's been so much content made for him. There's a lot. There's a lot. I mean, it, I, a good primer, even just to get a touch of him, I would suggest like Books of Magic, the Neil Gaiman. Um, like just a nice intro. Some of the Swamp Thing right. stuff doesn't match up. Like his first, like his first appearance in Swamp Thing, like he's kind of like a sorcerer, and then it's not until like years later that he shows up and he's like the cool guy in the trench coat, who's like, I just, I mean, the idea of it, uh, I think it's just like I always, I always thought he was cool. Like even when I was younger, just like the trench coat and the cigarette, like just played on my own masculinity issues, <laughs> um, and the idea of an occult detective. It's just really awesome to me. You know, like my uncle, the same uncle was like, you know, he was into like at at different periods in time, like weird stuff. Like I'm going to play records backwards. What if I have like an occult Bible in the house? Like maybe that'll freak everybody out, (laughs) you know? So like that stuff would be around. And as a little kid, you know, if, if anybody older than you is going like, yeah, there are demons and they live on earth and you don't see them. You're like, wait, so the movie they live is real? Like, you know, <laughs> and so the idea of this guy who whose job was to go around and, and search this out and he could move between the, I think it's also the fact that he could move between the worlds. That's the best part of the books and the mythology of that character for me is that like, he's this earth being who's basically like every detective you've ever seen from like NYPD Blue. And, but he also has the ability to move into hell and interact with the high levels of guilt and punishment in that world and take it on. It, I don't know. That for me is like catnip. <laughs> it's like this guy, this guy is like a hard boiled. I mean, I'm, I'm again, the Irish Catholic. I'm like, so wait, he's a cop and also he can take on the guilt and shame of the world. I'm in. Like, give me, give me all of it. <laughs> So he's another one where it's like it's it's crazy to think that 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 book like Hellblazer and Lucifer have both been turned into 
network TV shows. Absolutely. I mean, and Hellblazer was also a, a Keanu Reeves movie. In the, yeah. Like, you know, Constantine. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. It's just Constantine, right? Exactly. I don't think it's just the Hellblazer name. Exactly. Um, I, th- I think that's probably because it was like for international reasons. I think that Constantine probably translated better than, than Hellblazer, I, I guess. But yeah, I mean, it's it's another one of these characters that they made who seems not commercial at, at all. And yet they've been able to make constant commercial properties out of it. <laughs> Which is, a, I think, is a good lesson for creators because I, it's funny. I do, I do meet people at cons or like writers, and you'll get into conversation like who are coming up or trying to get into certain publishers, and they're like, "What's the trick? What's the ticket? Like, what's the thing that I have to do to check this off?" And like at Image, especially, I'm like, I think if you write anything that you think is going to be commercial, you're never going to get greenlit here. <laughs> like, like, I just don't think that's the aesthetic. God, God love it because it helps me, but also I think it's made for some amazing books. Is I'm like. Like I, I remember trying to talk to somebody about it and they were like, no, I just, I, I, it's a really commercial idea. Like, can you introduce me to Eric? And I'm like, I don't think you, one, like, com- I don't know that commercial exists. And you got to think like the co- books that are commercial at Image are like some of the weirdest fucking books I've ever read in my life. And he just looked at me and I'm like, explain Saga to me. Like, talk to me about what Saga is. I'm like, so there's a, there's a guy who has a television as a head and it plays porn sometimes and he's tracking like once you start getting into it it's like he has a wet nurse who's an alligator like yeah. you know like when like, there's All comic books are like that right like like the ba- the babysitter is dead and missing the lower half of her body and you can see part of her spine like how so tell me how commercial is your book in comparison <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know even so, the walking dead right where they had to they had to hit the pitch this weird twist just to get it made but it's just like a never-ending zombie movie it's hard to imagine that being commercial or lasting more than a few issues and it's the biggest thing in the world well it's so incredibly dark can you imagine going to a major publisher or a major studio and saying all right i want to do this thing and what we're going to do is like every season someone that the audience loves we're gonna like beat them to death with a bat (laughs) that's that's just what we're gonna do and they'd and be like, two, it'll be a bat with like barbed wire <laughs> around it. And it's just going to keep going. Yeah, it just keeps going. We're going to have pregnant people that you root for. They're going to like, everyone's going to get killed. Right? <laughs> like, Small like, child's going to lose an eye. Yeah. There's the son of the hero. You love him. He's good. He's going to die. <laughs> it's okay though. Cause his mom became a zombie a while back. Like, <laughs> and this is our, this is our book. There's also a, a guy, you know, there's a person who walks around and has like, you know, tigers. Like, because like, in theory, people are like, no, Walking Dead's super commercial. And I'm like, no, if we sat around the dinner table and I pitched it to you as a family member, you'd go like, Sean's still a fucking dreamer. He still doesn't know what anyone wants to buy. You know, where you're like, no, it just, it just hit something. And it was done so well that it didn't matter that it was, I mean, in a lot of ways, I'm like, it's uniquely Robert's imagination, just like Saga's uniquely Brian's imagination. Like, I do think that's what people miss a lot of times is like we're constantly obsessed with each other and our own uniqueness, right? Like good dates are about discovering a person and the way they think that's different from you. And I think like most of life is like that is the good, the the really exciting moments of communication are usually when you're like, Oh, I have this new understanding because of the way you're looking at the world that I would never look at the world. And I think that's what, you know, a lot of times comics can do. They can just be such raw imagination that you're like, fuck man I, I, Brian thinks so wildly different than 
than me and Jeff Lemire thinks so different than Brian and me and you can just jump from the really great creators and I think you just have such a definitive sense of their voice and and what they think is important what they deal with and where their brain goes that like like that's I think that's really that's just really exciting like Brian is amazing I don't think he gets enough credit like he has so many compelling across multiple of his books like animal or non-human characters that are massive and insanely lovable like it's just like this magic thing he can do in every book that it's like a cat shows up and it only can say lying i'm like favorite character love (laughs) couldn't get enough like um you know and there's things that robert can do that like you know there's a real simple honesty in the characters i think that robert does in invincible and walking dead that gets glossed over where people are like it's just a zombie book and i'm like nah those characters are sincere and you don't see that a lot like they they have to believe in each other and they have to believe that the world can be built again like that that's a really idealistic thought you know so i just think that that's the stuff that a lot of writers get caught up in is they're like zombies are hot i'm gonna write a zombie thing but it's not zombies it's vampires and that's the commercial angle and it's like ah the commercial angle is like if you can figure out who the fuck you are like that that is what's gonna get your book done somewhere i i really believe that's really cool that's uh, i hadn't that, that i've never heard it put quite that way and that was really really powerful stuff thanks okay so let's uh let's go to your number one well this is just it, i mean probably one of the biggest i uh, just a huge influence on me is just preacher uh garth ennis um i remember my uncle giving me this book when it first came out i think you know it was I was probably in high school, I think, when he first gave it to me. And it just, it blew me away. Like this, like the entire Bible kind of being portrayed as a Western with like Irish vampires. You know, this is another one, like try and try and elevator pitch this. It's like impossible. Impossible. And the fact that it became a TV show, it, like that went multiple seasons is insane. <laughs> like, like, I mean, it took a while to get there, to be oh, fair. There were a lot of people who out what preacher was and wouldn't get go get it made absolutely i mean yeah i mean i I remember hearing about it being optioned like literally probably decades ago and being and at the times being like they're never making that i don't know how you make that and i just you know it's another one like i always loved (laughs) this will sound horrible like ennis is such an irish writer to me in the sense that like his characters are honest they're funny and brutal as hell like literally brutal in their honesty and in their beauty and in their vulnerability, but also like the world itself is like pretty grotesque and violent and brutal. Like he will, he definitely will push some readers to points where they're like, this is, sh-. I, I get mad because sometimes I'll, I, I've known people who are like, well, Ennis does a lot of shock. Like there's shock in his books. And I'm like, I think that dismisses what he's really doing. I think if you grow up with Catholicism, like, like a lot of Irish Catholics, like you're, you're going to school and at home going through the Bible a lot. Like that was my background. Like the Bible's a really brutal book, right? Mm-hmm. And you're told constantly, like, this is everything to us. And then you'll flip through it and you're like, oh, he got lashed a bunch of times. They cut the middle of his body and stuck fingers into him. And that's Christ. Okay. That's interesting. And then you flip to other parts and you're like, oh, the way that we get revenge back is like, like there's certain books of the Bible that are insane where it's like, you know, Enoch is like, or Ehud is like stabbing people like, like through like the ass, like making their colon drop out. And you're like, that's pretty graphic. That's a really graphic 
explanation of, of vengeance or like kids are like harassing someone and he gets he prays to god to send a bear to come and kill him and god does oh the bald guy yeah 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 because yeah, he's bald yeah their <laughs> kids are yelling heckling him you're baldy bald and he's like god just please if you could do anything to help me like like kill these kids and god's like well, i'll send a bear a bear will come and murder these these bastards for calling you bald like the book's really really violent and the descriptions are like intense especially old testament ones and so like whenever i see things where it's like the word like you'll have something in a book and you're like wow that's really graphic and intense i don't know there's a lot of me where i look at it and i'm like ah that's somebody who grew up with a lot of bible man like that's i feel like because there's because there there is also the flip of it is like the bible also at times like this isn't a theology thing i don't really care what anyone believes it's it's more of like as a as a work of writing i'm like there's this intense brutality but there's also amazing beauty in the book at different times as well and so like there are times with certain like i think writers who like have have that kind of not just christian but catholic background that like i can see there's a real earnestness in jesse in preacher of like I'm God's son, I'm going to do the right thing, even though, like, that hasn't really been earned by God or the people around me. But it's what I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to I'm gonna be better. And that's, like, just such a Catholic idea of, like, I'm going to be better each day for, for and for selfless reasons. And then the, the, the flip of that just being, like, I mean, there's also, like, you know, the, there's the whore Madonna, you know, back and forth of, of, of the love of his life. And, I mean, all of that stuff, I just look at it and I'm like, these... I just feel like this is years and years of Bible stories kind of condensed into, you know, Ennis's own like personal unique take on voice on it, which I don't know when I read it, it blew me the fuck away. And it was one of those things where I was like, Oh, comics, comics and literature can be something I didn't think it could be. You know, I felt like that in theater for me, it was like discovering Sam Shepard. Uh, the playwright is like I saw a play of his and like somebody like pissed on a 4-H sign on stage and I, I learned that was in the stage directions and they sheared a sheep on stage and I was like okay I didn't know what theater was like I just didn't know <laughs> I had no idea that you were I thought it was way more boring and, and like predetermined and, and, and less insane than this and when I read Preacher I remember just being like oh shit this feels like the new like this feels like it's gonna push things in a, in a really exciting direction and, yeah. and I, it feels like a, uh, Ennis at his best, and it's something that he loses sometimes, I, I feel, but and a lot of the sort of copycats or people who read Punisher or Preacher just on one level forget about is that at his best, there's also a lot of heart and a lot of of really touching stuff in those books too. And, and you need the offset. If it's just all shock and awe and blood and gore, it doesn't have any impact because you need to care about those characters before it happens. And Preacher is so good at that. Absolutely. I mean, Preacher was a pretty massive, I, I wasn't reading at the time, but I know going back, like it was a pretty massive subconscious influence on, on saints and saints for me was like my own per like me trying to do my own personal take on the bible and it was like it was the same kind of idea like there was definitely there were some people who like saints was an interesting book it really gave me a career because like some people really hated that book and some but then there was also a lot of people like influential people who like absolutely loved it and the differences were just like what they want to experience in a comic because for me i was like i was very taken with the same thing that i loved about preacher and the same thing that still fascinates me about the bible where i was like can you have a book that is at times ridiculously absurd right like the story of the bald guy getting 
you know, a bear to come kill kids for picking on him. To me, it's like really funny. Like it's just so silly, um, right? So like something that's like as absurd and ridiculous and funny and laughable as the Bible, but also is like so incredibly beautiful and inspiring as passages of the Bible, but is also like just incredibly brutal and horrifying as passages of the Bible. So like there's definitely people on that book, and I think Preacher comes into this at times too, who are like, this is too totally like totally this is throwing me off i don't know if i'm supposed to laugh or be scared or be inspired and, but i think for some for other people it's like i love that it it's refusing to have a genre right like the bible doesn't have a genre it just is and i feel like in a lot of ways i'm like preacher like at, at most it's a western <laughs> you know but it's so <laughs> but it's like but it's so much more than that in a way where i'd be like it also does not have a genre you know and i love that about that book Wow. Okay. That was, uh, that was great. Thank you for, for sharing your, your list with us. Sure. Sorry about how much time it took. That's okay. That was great. Um, I'm really happy with that. We got to talk with you and get to know you a bit. Yeah. yeah. Consider it a public service announcement for, uh, for all of those series. Is there are plenty of people who haven't read them. I think the shows and the movies get a lot of attention. Sure. But, uh, you know, it's good. It's, it's good news to get that out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think they're all worth, those are all worth checking out. They're all amazing books that's the great thing with comics is like you can never catch up yeah tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah great <laughs> so where where can people find your stuff and and uh what's what's next for you um well i mean i i'm sort of findable on online at twitter uh for now <laughs> we'll see how long my my soul can deal with it but uh at, at Sean Chris Lewis is where I'm at on Twitter. And basically, like, Bliss is coming out. And then um, Hayden and I are working on a new book together. So I'm hoping that'll be out in 2021. And I'm, I'm doing a book over at Vault, which I think will also be coming out in 2021, which is like a space opera book. And then uh, it looks like I'll be doing some stuff with maybe one of one of the bigger publishers. Uh, though I can't say a lot about it right now, but starting to figure out what some of that stuff might look like. Wow. Wow. Really cool. Uh, okay, yeah. So I think that's that's it. Thank you so much for yeah, being on the show. Me. We would love to have you back anytime. You got a yeah. list you want to share or anything yeah. you want to promote? <laughs> I'd be happy to. It's been really fun. Thanks a lot, guys. So don't forget. In addition to that Twitter address, uh, all the stuff is available uh, from Image Comics. Um, I know I just read Coyotes last week, pretty much cover to cover, and it was phenomenal. Uh, it is absolutely worth your time. So, folks at home, please check all that stuff out. And hey, if you're thinking about the uh, the list itself, Preacher, Constantine, Hellboy, are there other religious adaptations that we missed, or do you think maybe we're being a little unfair to Lucifer the show? I know it's very popular. Uh, feel free to let us know there's all kinds of ways that you can get a hold of us we can be reached at geektop5 at gmail.com on twitter at geektop5 and we're still on facebook facebook.com slash geektop5 yeah, long as there's still a facebook and uh, you know knock on wood i can't decide what part of that side of that argument i want to be on uh, but that should keep you busy for a week uh, for now we'll see what happens there um sean thank you again for joining us absolutely thank you guys it's been really fun 
And while we're handing out thanks, uh, we'd be remiss not to mention Jamie Reum, uh, the guy behind our theme song. Reum is spelled R-E-A-U-M-E. He's a music guy. He's a performer. He's an enthusiast. A lot of the cool music geek stuff we don't get to on the show a lot, you can find from him. Uh, find him uh, at Jamie underscore Reum on Instagram or at Jamie Reum official on YouTube. Also, check out his project at TriviaSchmivia.com. Uh, if you remember Pub Night Trivia, you can now do it online. Line. They've got a really great setup where you can get involved uh, just doing the occasional game with your friends or get involved with the league play. It comes together really cool. All kinds of cool stuff to keep you busy and, uh, until we can talk to you again. I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And this has been Geek Top 5. We'll talk to you again next week.